are going to return back to the series of study on the first Corinthians. We are in chapter 9 today, and the text for today is uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 18. And I've titled the message, Apostolic Rites. In order to really understand this chapter and the content of this chapter, we need to go back to chapter 8, how we have studied there. And in chapter 8, we studied about a particular issue in the church of Corinth, and that was the issue about food that was sacrificed to idols. Now, is this kind of food that was once sacrificed in the temple of an idol, can this food be re-prepared so that we can just eat the substance and not worry about whether it's tainted by idols or demonized or has been impure or polluted by any other elements? And this was the question that the Corinthian church was struggling with. And Paul was very clear about this. He says, idol is actually nothing. Idol is not God. As a matter of fact, there are no other gods except one and true God. And so, actually, if we don't fall into superstition, then the food that was sacrificed to idols means really nothing. It's just food. Food doesn't draw us closer to God or draw us away from God. It really has to do with our heart's devotion to God. What we do with the food, that's the important thing. But at the same time, he says that there are those who don't have that conviction. They still have that superstitious notion. They still have that legalistic way of thinking. So they are fundamental about the fact that once this is sacrificed to the idols, then it is tainted by the idols, it has been branded and sealed by the idols, and that means it's demonized. That means it's impure, it's going to have an effect upon us. And so perhaps some of these people who are very tender, super sensitive, neurotic about this matter, they thought, you know, once they come close to this kind of food, they're going to be damaged. And we understand that today too. Now, I don't know on which side we place ourselves on when it has to do with you know, taking vaccine, for example. There are people who are neurotic about taking vaccine. It's a whole conspiracy theory about how you know, somebody is plotting to take over the whole world and basically control our minds by putting those nano chips or elements in our bloodstreams through vaccines and so forth. Are those the ones who have strong faith? And we are the ones who have weak faith, therefore we resort to vaccine? Or maybe we have strong faith and those who are weak will resort to other explanations out of fear. I don't know. I guess we just have to wait and see. But the thing is, what Paul is saying is, if you consider yourself to be strong in your faith about certain matter, and you see other Christians who don't have that kind of faith, they really think that the meat that was sacrificed to the idols are demonized. And if they see Christians just 
engaging in all kinds of free activities at the expense of their faith that's being damaged, then Apostle Paul says we're actually sinning against their conscience. And this is something that we need to seriously consider. That in the name of Christ, the freedom that we have in Christ, are we perhaps taking advantage of others and considering lightly the tender conscience of others? And so Paul says adamantly in verse 13 of chapter 8, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, not that the food itself has to do with sin, but the way I go about engaging in my Christian freedom and taking advantage of this situation and not regarding how my fellow brothers and sisters who are weak in faith are thinking. And if they fall into sin because they're sinning against their own conscience, they're operating without any faith when they engage in participating in the feast, for example involving the food that was once sacrificed to idols. Then Paul says, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. It's amazing spirit of altruism, spirit of truly considering others before yourself. So the conclusion that I made last time, as I recall, was that we as Christians are given freedom. We have the freedom. We have the rights. But our priority is not to take advantage of the rights, not to just utilize the, the freedom to the max, but be even willing to relinquish our freedom, relinquish our rights, if we must, for the sake of liberating others and empowering others. And in this context, Apostle Paul writes, in chapter 9, these words, he says, Am I not free? Certainly he is free. We as Christians are free. We are free from legalism. We are free from superstitionism. We are free from all kinds of things that would tug at us and hold us in bondage. Certainly we are free. Then he asks this critical question. Am I not an apostle? He's not only a free Christian, he's a free apostle. Now he's claiming even more of a right, more of an authority as an apostle. What is the basis for his apostleship? How can he claim that he's an apostle? Well, he says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? That's the first criterion of apostleship. You must have a direct encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you receive your commission. That's where you get commissioned as an apostle. Apostle in Greek is the term apostolos, which literally means the sent one or commissioned one. So how can you be an apostle if you're not sent or commissioned directly by the source? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, I met the Lord. I'm not one of the twelve. I didn't fellowship with the Lord for three years in his earthly Ministry years, I wasn't one of them. But later, after Jesus ascended to heaven, He appeared to me in a personal way. On the way to Damascus, the Lord struck me with a blinding light. And in that light, I saw the Lord. I heard voice of the Lord. 
That's what he's saying. That's why I'm an apostle. Not because I was ordained by some denomination that says, you are now an apostle because we prophesied to you that you're an apostle. Nothing like that. No man was involved in this. Only the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I can confidently do the work of an apostleship. And then the second criterion he says is, are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. There's an evidence, there's fruit of my work. I'm not just an apostle in Tyler, just playing a role. I produced something, I birthed something, and I birthed you guys. Not that all apostles have to birth churches or plant churches necessarily. But that's one of the primary works of an apostle. Someone who is sent on a mission by Christ is to help to build up the church. And Paul says, I'm building up the church. I built you. I actually helped to birth you. The other signs of apostleship, of course, preaching the gospel. I think all apostles or anybody who is on a commission from the Lord, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a missionary, whether you're a lay leader in the body of Christ, whatever it may be, you and I, we must proclaim the gospel. What is the gospel? Gospel content is none other than the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, centered on the cross. Are we preaching that? Are we telling them the good news of the love of God through Christ demonstrated on the cross for us? We must ask that question. And then, of course, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, he talks about specific signs or the marks of true apostleship. Signs and wonders and miracles. And Apostle Paul did all of that. He's saying it's not just my words. God backs it up by His Holy Spirit by confirming my words with a demonstration of supernatural power. And he's done all that. But the greatest sign is the church. I believe that's where we need to focus on. Are we truly called by Christ? Are we truly sent by Christ? That means whatever ministry we are involved in, we must help to build up the church. It has to do with something related to the church. We cannot do, we cannot do just the things of the world neglecting the church. Today, there's a whole movement that's going on Here in Korea, as you know, many people are getting disillusioned by the institutionalized church and the denominational churches and mainline churches and so forth. And so they don't want to have anything to do with the churches. So this is a phenomenon known as Kana'an. And you reverse that and you go Annaga. Annaga, that means I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be involved in a local church. You know. And so these people would just congregate in their little groups and so forth, and they hate using the term church. Even though even Jesus used the term, ecclesia. You know? Of course, you know, they don't like the term church because it reminds them of institution, organization, bureaucracy, you know, hierarchy. That's not the way Jesus operated. Think about Jesus and his apostles. They were so loving, communion, working dynamically as a team, having effect upon the society and the people around them. 
And yet people just get turned off about the church and they don't want to have anything to do with the church. I'm sorry. Everything we do has to do with the church. Why? Because we are members of the body of Christ, which is the church. So maybe we need to redefine church or go back to the original essence of what the church is. Body would be good. Body is a very organic concept. I like the term body because body means it's living, dynamic, and there are different parts working together and bringing this sense of harmonious wholeness under submission to the headship of Jesus Christ. All these are signs, evidences of Apostle Paul's work as an apostle. And then in verse 3, this is what he says, This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. This is the Greek term apologia. Apologia, that's where we get the word apology. And that's where we have the term apologetics. In theological studies, there's a branch called apologetics, which has to do with defending the gospel. This is not making excuse like, I apologize, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry we are a little too strong about the gospel, sorry we have to preach the cross. No, it's not that kind of apology. It has to do with defending the integrity of the gospel. And Paul says, I want to defend the integrity of my calling and my commission as an apostle because it seems like there are some people who are in judgment of, of me. And this is just his first letter, but in second letter, he gets even more harsh. And he counters all the arguments of all these people who are saying that maybe Apostle Paul is not quite an apostle because we have others who seem much more super apostle than Paul. They speak better than Paul. Oh, they, they, they are popular. They draw the crowd. Oh, they demonstrate signs and wonders here and there. Even though Apostle Paul also did that, but he did that discreetly. But there are these showmen, so-called apostles, which Apostle Paul calls later in 2 Corinthians, those so-called super apostles. Anytime you put those extra terms in, in your title or in the church's name or anything like that, that's, that's something to be suspected. Here in Korea too, we're not satisfied with just, just a plain adjective, you know. We've got to put something else. We're more true, true church. We are the real church. We are the pure church. We are the more dynamic church. We're super spiritually empowered church. We have all these adjectives. Why don't we just call ourselves Christian and be done with? And now Paul is making a defense about his authority and his right as an apostle. First strategy is to defend it based upon the present custom. How do you treat other apostles, like Peter, for example? What about the twelve? How do you treat them? How do they operate? What's their tradition? What's their custom? Am I out of sync with what is taken for granted? This is what Paul is asking. He says in verse 4, Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us 
as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas. That's Peter. Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? It's the custom, it's the tradition, it's accepted thing to support ministers of the gospel. Even our Lord was supported by women who were willing to give of their assets. Not only to take care of the Lord, but His disciples, His entourage. It's the custom. And I could claim that based upon the custom and the tradition. But he goes on further. He says, let me give you some examples. Examples from the world, from the common ordinary life out there. And this can be a sort of spiritual analogy. He says in verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? And no one can protest that a soldier needs to be equipped by the army. They need to supply them. They need to feed them. They need to take care of them, give them shelter, give them allowance money. It's an acceptable thing in the world. And Paul's saying, we are soldiers of Christ. We should be taken care of as well. What about the, the vineyard owner? Doesn't he have the right to eat the grapes and the farmers have the right to eat off of the fruit of the land? Certainly they do. As a matter of fact, those who plant crops, they can have all they want to take care of themselves and their families. Maybe they don't need to save it in the storehouse or you know, for some business sake, but they can have everything that they need to have in accessing food for their family. This has been the custom in human society all these years. And who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Hey, if I'm tending the flock, I have the right to drink the milk. I have the right to eat one of the sheep if I must. That is acceptable. There's nothing wrong about that. There's nothing selfish about it. There's nothing that has to do with greed and exploitation about that. It is the right thing. And then he goes further. He says, now let me talk about it from the scripture perspective. In verse 8. Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threads should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Even the Bible talks about commonsensically that, you know, oxen who are treading the grain, they shouldn't be mistreated. They shouldn't famish. They should eat some of the grain along the way. And the scripture 
is very commonsensical about this. But then he takes it one step further. He says, the scripture does not just allow for this commonsensically. It mandates it. It's demanded in the scripture that this be done. And in verse 13, Paul says, Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. He's talking about the priests and the Levites who are taken care of by the rest of the other tribes. And when they bring offerings, the best of the portions oftentimes will go to the priests and to take care of, feed the Levites as well. This is mandated in the Bible. And Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, I'm sure you're familiar with this, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. And this is talking about not just the honorary fame or prestige, it's talking about taking care of these elders, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Now, I'm so glad I could preach this out of clarity of conscience because I'm not preaching this to take up an offering. <laughs> Nor am I demanding for some kind of you know, income or salary you know, from the people. Because that's the awkward thing about ministers who, who have to preach this, and yet they're at the hands of the mercy of the people, the congregation. So I'm so glad I'm not in that situation to preach this. But the point that I want to make is this. This is not the point that Paul is making about how you should take care of us as apostles. He's saying, I have all these rights. I have all the authority to demand that and more. It's like the parents saying to the children, later when the children grow, I have all the right to demand that you take care of us because I took care of you all these years. But this is the clincher. He says in verse 12b, But we did not use this right. Never once did I claim this for my own. And along with that part, able to say, But I do claim it for everybody else, but I will not claim it for myself. I claim it for Timothy. I claim it for Barnabas. He doesn't need it. Barnabas is a pretty wealthy man. He, he sold his plot of land and gave it to the church but if there's any minister who is not being taken care of by the church, then I will rebuke the church and correct the church that you should take care of them. But having said that, don't worry about me. I take care of myself. This is what Paul is saying. We did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Because sometimes the church gets very petty about this. Now, should we, as the pastors or ministers, should be kind of kept poor and at the lower rung of the economic you know, ladder and, and just keep them humble? You know? I, I kind of believe that to a degree, that we shouldn't be wealthy. But the thing is, we as pastors and leaders should be taken care of. But the people sometimes think, maybe we shouldn't. We should keep them humble, under our control, and so forth. There's all kind of politics, maneuverings that's going on. 
And Paul says, if that's going to be an issue, that's going to split up the church, then I don't want to have anything to do with that, so I will not use my right. And then in verse 15, he says, but I have not used any of these rights, and I am now writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast that I didn't have to rely upon you. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. I'm trying to shake your pocketbook for some money or for some support. I am not. I'm glad I am not. And my conscience is clear, poor saying. And then he says this wonderful thing in verses 16 to 18. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. In other words, he is just a hireling. If he does not do it voluntarily. But all this point that he's making is, I preach voluntarily. And that reward is not maybe presently from your hands, but it is a reward that Christ has in store for me. I am compelled to preach. Simply put, I am preaching because I am commissioned to preach. I'm not preaching it for money. I'm not preaching it for fame. I'm not preaching it for the benefits that you're granting unto me. And in verse 18, he says, What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. I think that's why Apostle Paul is such an amazing apostle. And his authority is so highly esteemed because nobody can blame him or nobody can make an issue of him about this or that. He's doing it for money. He's doing it for fame. He's doing it because there's some kind of gain at the other end. Paul can say, I don't have any of that. I make my own living. I, I speak on, on behalf of all the other ministers, but you don't have to do a thing for me. I did everything for you, as parents would do for their children, all on a sacrificial basis, all on a voluntary basis. You don't have anything on me because I did it truly imitating in the likeness of Christ. So he's making a comparison. He's contrasting himself. There are those ministers who work for money, who work for popularity, who work for fame. And sometimes they become famous because of Jesus, because of the church. And they have the rewards here on earth. And these are the people that the Corinthian church were gravitating towards. They said, wow, these are super apostles. We should give them double, triple. Let's honor them. Because they are people of great prestige and power. And Paul says, I don't have anything to do with that. In the Old Testament days, there were prophets who were operating that way. These were known as the institutional prophets who hung around the courts of the king. Because the king would give them all the benefits. So you hang around the king and the royalty, then your life is pretty much taken care of. But the problem is, these institutional prophets were not independent enough to speak against the king when the king errs. 
And that's why the true prophets of God in the Old Testament days were oftentimes independent prophets. Even though they are persecuted, even though their food money, allowances are cut, and they find themselves poverty-stricken, they will speak against the king, they will speak against the priestly clans, they will speak against other institutional prophets because they are free. Free to only abide by the word of Yahweh. So this is what Paul is saying. We have to be free. If there's condition attached to we being provided for, then that's suspect. You have to ask certain questions about this. Are they asking me to keep my mouth shut? Is this a form of spiritual bribery? And they say, oh, we prayed. And God is asking us to give you this amount of money. And so that money comes into our hands. And the next thing you realize is that you can't say certain things that may trip them up. Or you can't say certain things that will rebuke them, offend them. Why? Because you ate off of their hands. If that's the situation, how can we be gospel preachers? How can we, with a sense of integrity, speak only for the Lord? We cannot. I remember long ago, this is sort of a funny story I sometimes share with people, to just make a point. I think I was so stupid in those days. I'm much smarter now. Well, when I was attending Fuller Seminary, and, and I remember that I think it was like the first week or second week, and I was sitting at the school cafeteria, and somebody came up to me. And this person obviously was a wealthy man. He says, uh, hey, I heard about you, that you're an upcoming second-generation minister. I'd like to support you. I want to pay for the whole tuition, you know, until you graduate. He said that, just like that. And it, immediately, I was going, wow, God send <laughs> blessings, right? And then I had the audacity to ask him. That I was really green at the time. Says, I don't mind accepting the money, but under one condition, that you don't make any condition or place any obligation on this or any demand upon you. You said you heard from the Lord, you're giving it freely, then I'll accept that. And that's done. Did not hear from this guy after that. Now, if he truly was sent by God, was willing to give me without any obligation, without any strings attached, or any kind of condition or expectation of me, he could have done that, but he didn't do that. Or maybe just I offended him because I was so immature, and you don't go around developing relationship that way. But there are times when I've received money from ministers or elders or churches, and they would say to me right there up front, don't ever feel obligated. This is totally from God. You don't have to ever do anything of a favor for me because I've done this for you. I'm so set free when people, people give me money saying that. And I've had those good occasions as well. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that Paul's apostolic credential had a way of setting him free so that he can serve Christ and others without always feeling like uh, I'm obligated uh, not to say certain things, not to offend them, not to quite come on too strong. He had to be free to proclaim the gospel 
the way the Spirit of God would inspire him to do. Let me tell you uh, what Paul's real credential for his apostleship was. There are a lot of ministers who like to establish credential based upon their pedigree, their backgrounds. They might say, well, my, my ancestry. I, I am third generation pastor or you know, I'm, I'm this and that or I have a degree from a prestigious theological seminary or I have uh, you know, all these mentors who've empowered me. They can go on and on like that. But Apostle Paul refused to boast about these things. Listen to what he has to say in 2 Corinthians because there he really establishes his defense of his apostolic authority. In chapter 11, beginning with verse 21b, Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. When he uses the term boast, he says, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And he gets sick and tired of trying to match up to this kind of sort of competitiveness. He says, I am out of my mind to talk like this. He says, if you talk about this, I am more than that. I was a reputable man in the Israel society. I have all this pedigree. I have a degree. In those days, he would have been a doctorate of law. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I, I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of these things that show my weakness. I guess the, the lesson that I got from this text, and each time I come to this text, it empowers me, is that if we are truly servants of Christ, then we must be accountable to Christ. Before we talk about anything else, denominations, our supporters, you know, uh, our mentors, whoever that's human must take secondary position. It has to be Christ and Christ alone. And that means we have to be free enough to speak the word that Christ will grant unto us. Are we in a position to do that? Sometimes I find myself at our school too. Our school is not like a church, so I guess the professors can, you know, protest or we can speak some, you know, prophetic words and, and so forth. 
at the risk of losing our job and things like that. But there are times you feel like in order to stay in that position or hold on to that, you know, that ministry or that status or that ranking, you feel like you can't quite say the things. You're scared that you might get demoted. You know. And me too, I struggle with that constantly. But I ask this question always. Maybe regarding the minor matters, that's fine. I, I'm not going to put up a war uh, for that. But if, if certain issues come up in which I have to put my foot down and maybe even lose my job and, and that would jeopardize our finances and all, would I be willing to do that? I ask that question constantly. Why? Because I'm a servant of Christ before I'm a servant of man. Servant of a denomination, ser servant of a seminary, servant of any, any institution. I'm a servant of Christ. And the thing that we can learn from Apostle Paul is because he was an apostle, someone who has a commission from Christ. He's responsible to Christ. He cannot place himself jeopardizing his freedom to speak the truth of the gospel. And that means everything has to be secondary. And he's saying, you see, I have all these rights that I can claim. But if that's going to be a hindrance, and that's going to put me in a position of suspect, because you begin to doubt that I do it for money, I do it for fame, I do it for this and that favor, then I don't want none of that. Take all your money back. All your offerings back. Let me do what I'm called to do. And you do what you're called to do. That is to recognize Christ and recognize the Spirit of God. And then the church is going to work. I think it's rare to find any church that can really operate this way. It's going to be very difficult to find churches like that. But I'm wondering whether we, maybe we need to rethink about doing church and rethink about doing Christian movement and ministry from this day forth. And of course, I'm not applying this to our local church, mind you. I'm not trying to create trouble. We're not, we're not trying to stir up something. I'm saying this in a general sense, that in whatever we do, we need to maybe reinstitute what I call apostolic integrity or apostolic dignity and start with that and calculate everything in line with that. I hope this is pretty clear from the text. I hope this kept me very liberating and empowering for all of you. I know it, it, it does for me. And, and I would preach this over and over, anywhere, in whatever setting, because it is scriptural. And we don't ever need to, I, I am in a position where I'm at the mercy of others too. I, for, for years I, I was a pastor who was at the mercy of the offerings of others where I receive my income and all. So I understand that. But at the same time, I always struggle that because the church is supporting me, if I cannot speak words that might sometimes injure certain individuals in the church, and I have to compromise my message, then what's wrong with that picture? Am I really a servant of Christ? And those are some of the things that I've been struggling with in the past. But this message just uh, reminded me once again that, wow, Apostle Paul in the first century, 
was struggling with the things that many ministers struggle today. And many ministers are trapped. They are sort of uh, captive under the pressure and obligation because of the financial pre pressure. And I think we need to be mindful once again, we cannot operate that way anymore. Uh, we have to maintain our apostolic integrity. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.